you're back with another episode of Money and Taxes from BB to XYZ. Thanks for listening in. I'm Regina Neenan, Certified Financial Planner. I am Jason Spessiner, Certified Financial Planner and Enrolled Agent. On today's episode, we are talking earnings. But what matters most? What you make or what you keep? We've seen clients who make five figures and live very comfortably. They earn, they save, they enjoy. And we've seen clients who make six figures, high six figures, and do the same. But we've also seen high earners who don't save enough. So we're here to tell you what matters most, what you make or what you save. Stick around for the answer to that question and a whole lot more. Okay, so Jason, let's get right down to it. What matters most, what you earn or what you keep? Well, I mean you do want to stop working at some point, right? So definitely, right, what you keep. But remember, what what we're talking about when we think about earnings is what you would consider earned income, right? So I actually got a, a 1040 pulled up here just to illustrate this idea. And this is basically what falls onto line one, which now in the, the 2022 version of 1040, you'll be happy to know, uh, has nine components on line one, all sorts of various things that could be considered earned income. But this is the sort of thing where you are paid for your labor, for your service, for your time. And really, right? how much of that are you going to keep so that you don't have to get paid for your labor, your service, and your time? So just to break that down, Jason, can you give us a quick uh, non-jargony definition of earned income versus passive income? Okay. Well, earned income essentially is something that you are receiving payment for because you spent some sort of effort or expertise or time earning that money, being paid by uh, someone or something to do that. Whereas passive income is simply something you put into some type of an investment vehicle. That might be a real estate property. Maybe it's a, a, a manager-managed business where you simply are just writing the checks for the investment and, and receiving the payments out of the profits. Maybe that's a stock and bond portfolio, right? Those are all things that would be considered passive income. And that's not necessarily... We're, we're talking about how much of that earned income are you going to keep and put into those passive income sources so that you don't have to earn as much income in the future. And quick segue here. I know it's the passive income side. Of course, you can you can save that income. You can keep that income. But Jason, I want you to talk a little bit about how and why we need to focus on keeping earned income? Why does the earned side of that matter so much? Well, I mean, you can do more things that are really kind of cool, right? With your earned income, as far as how and where you actually save those dollars, right? You know, earned income is what's required to fund things like a 401k or an IRA. So there's this sort of thing where if you want to move money into, you know, very effective kind of tax shelters, right? You have to have some earned income. Otherwise, you're really talking about, you know, great that you have a passive income source, but it's not necessarily going to allow you to contribute to something that might be maybe slightly more tax efficient for you over time. For sure, and that really brings us into kind of the generational breakdown here because baby boomers who maybe are looking at financial independence or retirement within the next few years, they don't have as many years to earn income before they stop earning income. So can you tell me a little bit about earnings for them and how they can really maximize what they do with their earned income in their last few working years? Well, there's kind of a really fun thing that you you can explore as you get closer to that retirement date where you're going to stop earning income and you're going to start living on your passive income sources. We're you can do the kind of dual strategy here of reducing your 
needs and, and expenses and kind of getting used to what, what your retirement sort of outflows would look like. And at the same time, the thing that you leverage to make that happen is by adding dollars into those tax efficient vehicles, right? So cutting down on where you're typically in sort of your peak earning years as you're nearing retirement, you're probably in a pretty high tax bracket or at least relatively so related to where you're going to be when you do retire. And so it's a good opportunity to really start, you know, hitting those maximum contributions consistently in anything that provides you that sort of that upfront tax break. And it really helps you get that better grasp of what that retirement lifestyle is going to look like and how you're going to fund it and how you get used to and adjusted to doing that. So it's like really practicing for retirement, for stopping that earned income. And they also, when people reach kind of that traditional nearing retirement age, they have the opportunity to do catch-up contributions. So we talk a lot about kind of training yourself. If you don't see those dollars, you won't spend those dollars. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about how you can hide those dollars from yourself using catch-up contributions to really get that practice in before you make the retirement transition. Well, I mean, if you're eligible for an employer-sponsored retirement plan, like a 401k, 403b, and you're 50 or older, next year you're able to put $30,000 into one of those plans. You can put that in all pre-tax, you can use Roth contributions, and you may even have a scenario where uh, your employer offers something called voluntary after-tax contributions. And if you're self-employed, those voluntary after-tax contributions, you can set up your own retirement plan and include those. And now all of a sudden, you've increased your contribution capacity clear up to to near $70,000. You have a huge amount of capacity that you can fund. I think the normal limit is $67,000. Then you have a a $7,500 catch-up contribution. I mean, you, you're talking about, you know, the potential to fund high five-figure either pre-tax or, or Roth IRA contributions. And that is a way to definitely, right? Take those dollars off the table, take them out of Uncle Sam's pocket, so to speak, and learn to live on what's left, right? While you're preparing yourself better for that retirement when you're not earning those dollars. That's huge, especially for people who are reaching those, you know, really high earning years and have the capacity to do that much saving. How can maybe if we look closer at Gen X, they're still maybe either getting close to those high earning years or maybe already in those high earning years. How can they start to really train themselves to keep more of their money rather than losing it to spending? This is where, of course, as we get away from the baby boomer generation and presumably somebody closer to retirement, this is obviously where you start to interject the sort of time is on your side part of this discussion, right? And so which what, what you have there with Gen X is this sort of idea that, you know, as you as you fund your various, you know, uh, tax efficient accounts or just do your investing in general, you can afford to take maybe slightly more risk, right? And so you can have sort of this more aggressive positioning that allows you to not only keep more of what you're earning, but also potential for it to grow a bit more, right? And so whether it's a scenario where you are high earning and able to make maximum contributions to all of your plans and able to really have that kind of surplus income where you were even left with some more after that. And you're saying, well, what do I do with it now? All the way down to, you know, it's kind of scraping everything together to get those dollars into those accounts. The bottom line is you now have that, that time frame, that additional, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 years for those more aggressive sort of investments to, to pay off. And as we're talking about, you know, the beauty of compounding here, and also putting earnings, earned income into certain buckets. Jason, what's the order of operations there? What order should folks, Gen X and even younger, be putting funds away? 
Yeah, this is a this is an all generation sort of bulletin here. Or, you know, order of operations. The very foundation of your financial plan should be your uh, what we affectionately called emergency and future opportunities fund, or EFOF for short. And so that is basically the source of dollars where if the proverbial poo hits the fan, right? You have money to spend on these needs that that are whether it's a sudden expense or an unforeseen disruption of income. You have those dollars put together, and that's typically going to be three to six months of uh, expenses. And so that's number one, right? Make sure that that EFOF is topped off and that you have those dollars available for that. Next, you're going to you're gonna turn to what I like to say are the gimmies, right? So if you're thinking about now long-term planning, right? The first thing that you're going to look at for a gimme is going to be like an employer match, right? So if you have company sponsor 401k, we'll match your contribution to that plan up to 5%. Go ahead and take the the free raise by just saving five percent at least of those of your earnings, right? Your earned income in that plan, and now all of a sudden you've effectively saved ten percent. From there, you want to kind of turn back to accessibility. I feel like, and you want to look at things where you can harvest tax benefits, but also keep those dollars accessible. Um, one of the most powerful vehicles for that is a is a health savings account. So if you are in a health savings account eligible, uh, high deductible health plan. Uh, make sure you're making that health savings account contribution. Make sure you're making that maximal contribution, whether it's individual or family. Making those contributions does two things. One is it gives you that triple tax advantage. You get a tax deduction for that HSA contribution. That money grows tax deferred. And if you use it on medical expenses um, at any point in the future, those qualifying expenses, it's going to be a tax-free distribution. But remember, you, you're very likely to have a medical expense sooner than later, right? It's, it's We all go through medical issues, have to see a doctor, whatnot. So you have some accessibility to those funds earlier. But the idea is, again, it's it, the S is for saving. We want to make these some longer dated dollars because there, there is a, a powerful tax advantage. Next on that is is our Roth IRA, right? So this kind of falls in with the HSA as well. You don't get an upfront tax deduction for it, but you do get tax-free growth and tax-free use. And so there's a huge component there where you want to have access to this larger pool of money in the future that will not be taxed, right? And so this becomes sort of that thing where you fund it, you're always able to access your principal within a Roth IRA, and then it's going to grow tax-free. So that ability to allow for that tax-free growth while relying on it as kind of the super emergency fund in a sense makes the Roth IRA a very powerful funding vehicle. And Jason, I'm just going to butt in here. You used a little bit of jargon there when you said principal. Maybe you can break that down. Principal. Oh, well, that's the that's the money you put into the thing, right? Yeah. So principal is in finance. Yes. Uh, your principal is your contribution or your investment to something, right? That you're expecting to earn return on. You always have access to the money you put into your Roth IRA, or as I affectionately like to call it, your principal. Then turning back where I really think you start to look here is priorities, right? So in order of operations, right? If you have short-term goals, you want to build a deck, you want to, you know, replace the fence, you want to landscape. So you might have some of these goals where, you know, putting extra dollars into a 401k plan is not going to be a good idea because those those dollars are meant to be used later in life, right? When you're in your 60s and 70s, not necessarily in your 30s and 40s when you're trying to do all these things around the house or travel the world or whatever it is. So make sure you're accounting for those short-term goals first in your savings plan 
But then, yes, to harvest the tax benefit either upfront or future tax benefit of those maximum employer-sponsored plan or 401k, 403b contributions, which again, for anyone under age 50 in 2023 is going to be $22,500. It's going to be your annual maximum if you're 50 or older. I add another 7,500 to that. So you're up to, again, up to $30,000. And if you're employer has a a voluntary after-tax contributions, you can go even higher than that. So that's where the order falls. And one thing I'll just point out is that I, I don't include on purpose, I don't include education savings in that list. And the reason why is that many of those vehicles that I just talked about can be purposed as an education savings vehicle. We uh, probably have heard of a 529 plan account, which is a very common education savings vehicle. But honestly, I think it comes with too many restrictions, frankly, too many kind of strings attached that you can you know, in some cases, harvest those benefits later while keeping your dollars flexible, not using that 529 plan account as you save. So yeah, that that's the order. Those are the places where you can stick the dollars. And then of course, right, the outlet for everything else that's left over after you do all your maxing is just a regular taxable kind of typical either brokerage account, or if you're interested in being a landlord or running a franchise, right, a real estate uh, purchase or, or a business. Now, if you just listened to everything that Jason said there and you're like, you know, I don't have the earned income to really reach all of those high savings numbers. Maybe I can fund a little bit here, get my full match from my employer and fund my Roth IRA. But beyond that, I maybe don't have that capacity. One thing that I like to point out being on kind of the budgeting side at our firm is focus on saving a percentage of your income. Salaries can vary very widely. So rather than sticking to a dollar amount, which is maybe great if you're making five figures, um, once you get into six figures, if you're striving to save $10,000, that's probably not enough depending on your circumstances. So I like to say focus on a percentage. That's really going to help you set a portion of your earnings aside so that as your earnings grow, you can remain sticking to that percentage and try to avoid some lifestyle creep. And that's something that I know I've seen a lot of, especially as folks get into their higher earning years. So we're maybe talking about more of the millennial generation now. Jason, can you maybe tell me a little bit about some millennials that you've worked with who have maybe struggled with with savings because of that lifestyle inflation, the lifestyle creep? I mean, frankly, I think part of that not only is lifestyle inflation, I think it's just inflation in general. It's it's expensive to uh, to launch out into the world nowadays, right? You, you're addressing things like student loan debt, and you're f- faced with you know looking at trying to to find a, a home to purchase, and there's just lots of costs that we all recognize are frankly just more than than what they were 30, 40, 50 years ago, and so it just it takes more dollars to kind of get yourself set and started on the right track. And so maybe you do spend a little bit more time kind of working through the the, the typical lifestyle costs and just getting into that right groove as far as what makes you comfortable lifestyle-wise, but also allows you to preserve some some money for down the road. And so, you know, options or ways to sort of help with that are, are looking at things like income-based repayment for your student loans. Maybe consider, you know, renting or taking on a roommate as an early and young professional. All of those things give you the capacity then to save your income so that at least you're taking those steps because the one thing you don't have is that high income and that ability to, to save, you know, large dollar amounts. 
you do have time, right? And the power of compounding on top of what you can save today is going to be just just an enormous benefit as time goes on. And I think I'm guilty of a little jargon there. Jason, do you want to explain the power of compounding and compound interest, what we mean by that? Oh, like didn't Einstein say that the eighth wonder of the world is compound interest. I mean, so so compounding is just simply earning a return on a return that you've already earned, right? So try to break this into an easy example. If if you have $100 that earns 10% in one year, that's going to be worth $110. Well, if it earns 10% again, it's not just on that first 100 you put in, it's on that 110. So now you're earning interest on the interest you've already earned. And so that's what compounding does. And the effects of compounding are are just enormous. It, it really is sincerely a, a sort of arrow in the quiver of a younger uh, saver, right? They they have this time to build that return, to build that capital simply f- just through the fact that the time exists, not through what they're actually putting into the accounts or topping them off every single time. And that's really the crux of our topic today, why it's so important to keep some of that earned income, whether it's you know starting off small, knowing that you have time to be able to increase your savings as you earn additional income, as you grow older, as you get closer to financial independence. It's also why it's important for Gen Z to start somewhere. Yeah. Savings rates, right? The amount of your earned income that you are saving, that savings rate is going to kind of move along with the time that you had that earned income and basically how close you are to not earn, needing to earn income, essentially. So the younger you are, and even if, for example, you're, I mean, you're still in school and you maybe you're getting a master's degree, or maybe, you know, there's something going on where you, but you're still earning some money, right? One way to look at that is, yeah, it's purely here to support me and to, to cover expenses and, and all the other things. But if you can just, take just a sliver out of that. You know, you can take a few dozen or $100 a month and just get that put into something that gives you that upside of of not only that compound interest and compound return, but also tax advantage. So something like a Roth IRA if you, if you're able to, that is a huge 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 early start, you know, at a young age. And just and just keep that there. Keep that in the back pocket and, and as you your earning capacity increases, you're just you just have that much more of a head start. Right. And it's also going to help you to avoid debt that you would later have to dig yourself out from once you do start that higher earning job. I know when I first started in the finance industry years back, I had a friend ask, what's the best way to get started saving? And I told them, if you have an extra $5 a week, $10 a week, save it. Start somewhere, start with something and just really get into the habit. I think building a strong habit when you're younger not only builds that foundation for you to grow on, but also just helps you get better at saving and saving in a way that is really intentional so that you can reach, whether it's those short-term goals, Jason, like you mentioned, things to really keep your life going, whether it's you know that deck, that home improvement, or that new car that you're eventually going to need if, if uh, driving a vehicle is something that your life requires. It's also going to help you visualize what you want out of life. Once you start to reach some of those smaller goals, you can build on with with larger ones. Can you tell me a little bit about folks who you've helped really kind of get the ball rolling on on reaching those goals? You're going to recognize this, right, as, as our in-house cash flow expert, that the best way to combat the sort of a spending problem, right, is to to save it before it actually is able to be spent, right? And so that, that's where I think of, you know, no matter where you're at, 
matter what stage, whether you're Gen Z and just starting out and just trying to, again, you know, I, I hate to use the word scrape by, but just get things put together or whether you are a baby boomer who's looking at a retirement in a couple of years, you are going to be more effective at saving money if you do it ahead of anything else, right? If you give it the priority. And when I say of anything else, I mean even of taxes, right? Because we have this capability to say, I want to make this money. I want to tax this money later, right? Note that how you do that is you put it into something like a 401k or, or a traditional IRA, right? So you can really prioritize saving. And if that's the mechanism that it takes and it, and it should, right? This should be the way you, you get yourself kind of motivated and kind of forced to save is to just do it first. Do it first. You, you live on what is left after that earned income comes in the door and you've accounted for your saving. Absolutely. Speaking of budgeting, that's the way that I encourage our clients to budget is to treat savings like an expense before your uh, your kind of flexible expenses, the things that you don't necessarily need. Put savings definitely before you know your takeout budget. I even put it before my grocery budget, saying you know I need to get this savings done. Sure, I'm going to need food, but I'm going to base my grocery budget on what I have left after my savings is is done. I'm not going to commit to certain subscriptions until after I know my savings is in place. And that's absolutely something that that I believe our clients can do and should do. And I mean, even circumstantially here, I mean, you, you could prioritize savings ahead of even your your required expenses in reality, right? I mean, you think about what either rent or mortgage costs, whether it's utilities, right? There, there are lots of things that you could say, well, I'm going to take the smaller place or I'm going to turn the AC off at a certain time, right? All of these things add up to places where you can prioritize saving, right? Putting money into something that you will use in the future over spending it. And it can include those required expenses also. It all goes back to the question, is it what you make or is it what you keep? It's clearly what you keep because that's going to help you keep it. Take those next steps. Absolutely. You know, my my favorite part of, I guess, the cash flow planning process is this kind of connection between saving and taxes. Uh, if you couldn't tell, right, I'm, I'm very excited about kind of the, the tax efficiency of, of being able to save. And, and that's what I really like about this is you have so much control. You have a bigger palette and canvas to work with when you start incorporating not only just like the saving of money and how that affects your spending, but of course, the other thing that, that we're all having to face, that's the, the tax, right? The, the tax that we end up paying, the the kind of hand in our pocket from Uncle Sam here. Um, you're able to use that to really be a constructive tool. And if you use it the right way, you can maximize what you keep that much more. Absolutely. I'm so lucky to have Jason here because I'm all about the the milestones, reaching those goals, celebrating. But we've always got to keep that eye on taxes. Yeah. Don't forget about Uncle Sam and uh, make sure that if you're mindful of Uncle Sam and you're mindful of that tax bill, you're going to be that much uh, better about minimizing it for sure. Absolutely. Savvy savers. So uh, let's get into today's takeaways. I'll kick us off with number one. Um, We've already said, you know, it's it's what you keep, but in reality, it's both. If you can earn more, if you can amplify your earnings, you can save more, you can keep more. So while we focus on the keeping, it's it's really a combination of the two. Right. And and you mentioned this er- earlier, Regina. Yeah. Number two here is, is since earnings can vary, right? I mean, you, again, just starting out, high earning years, whatever the case. 
aim to save that percentage of your salary, right? Aim to save something that is grounded in your realities. And just again, any bit helps. It's better to do something, right? In this case, than nothing. It's about what you keep, not necessarily what you earn. And wrapping up today's takeaways with number three, back to taxes. Save wisely by allocating dollars to your accounts in a tax-efficient way. Remember that order of operations that Jason told us about. Now, if you have an idea for a future podcast episode, or if you want to share some feedback on today's topic of earnings, you can reach out to us at podcast at fpfoco.com. You'll also find that email in the show notes. So feel free to let us know what you think. And yeah, join us next time on Money and Taxes from BB to XYZ, where we'll discuss the spectrum of risk. And let me give you a hint. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. All right. That's it for this week. And we'll, uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Jason Spessner and Regina Neenan are investment advisor representatives of Financial Planning Fort Collins, a registered investment advisor. The information in this podcast is provided for general educational and entertainment purposes only. It may not apply to you or your specific circumstances and should not be considered financial, investment, or tax advice.